Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. One, two, three, four. Hello, curious minds, and a very warm welcome to The Research Beat with me, your host, Jordan Krasinski. Today's guest is Mackenzie Graham, Senior Research Fellow at the Wellcome Centre for Ethics and Humanities. Mackenzie, welcome to the show. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Mackenzie, let's go straight into research focus. And could you tell us about the research you're currently working on? Sure. Um, so my research is primarily in well-being in patients with disorders of consciousness, so I'm interested in how thinking about well-being informs prognosis and decision-making in these patients, how we evaluate what constitutes a good recovery in patients with disorders of consciousness, and then kind of how we should think about well-being in chronic patients sort of needing prolonged care. So just a little bit of background about disorders of consciousness which might be helpful. It's this sort of spectrum of syndromes encompassing coma, vegetative state, minimally conscious state, plus and minus, and then another called cognitive motor dissociation, which I think we'll talk about a bit more. But so we can kind of imagine consciousness as this sort of spectrum. On the one axis, we have awareness, and on the other axis, we have wakefulness. So wakefulness is fairly easy to assess if, you're, if your eyes are open, um, you're awake. Uh, but awareness is a little bit harder uh, to assess. So normally this is done with behavioral measures. So neurologists will say something like, if you can, if you can hear me, you know, raise your hand or wiggle your toes or we'll get uh, you to sort of follow this light with your eyes. Um, so coma patients are neither awake nor aware. So they're kind of in the far bottom left corner of that, that spectrum. Um, patients in the vegetative state, they're awake. So they go through normal sleeping, waking cycles, but they're not aware. So they don't respond behaviorally to any kind of stimulation. Uh, MCS patients, they're awake and then their awareness kind of fluctuates. So sometimes they'll respond to commands uh, and sometimes they won't. Um, recently, MCS patients have been divided to this plus and minus. So if they can communicate, they're MCS plus, and if they can't, then they're MCS minus. And then cognitive motor dissociation is this sort of mis mis somewhat mysterious kind of uh, other syndrome, uh, which is what I'm particularly interested in. So this is really fascinating because when we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about it's very difficult to to define the ability to perceive the world being awake having some sense or understanding that the world is there and that you are there and so are some coma patients who appear on the surface to be unconscious actually inside conscious yeah so this is exactly what these cognitive patients with cognitive motor dissociation kind of are so as I said, the way we assess awareness in these patients is behaviorally. I mean, if I was going to assess your awareness, I would be more or less doing this behavior behaviorally. I would look at the way you behave. I would look at the way we sort of interact and, and you respond to me. Um, so I would say something like, Jordan, if you can understand me, you know, raise your hand. Or I can just tell by the way we're interacting that you're aware just because I can see your behaviors. But if you were just lying still and not responding to anything that I did or said, 
I would reasonably infer that you weren't aware. Um, but of course, there are some patients that are completely behaviorally non-responsive, yet they are aware. And these are these uh, patients with cognitive motor dissociation. So I'll just call them CMD because it's a little bit easier. So these CMD patients, um, they are aware uh, and we can we can verify this using neuroimaging. But for all intents and purposes at the bedside, they look just like um, patients in the vegetative state. So they, they don't respond to commands. Um, they don't seem, they don't move. Uh, well, they move kind of reflexively, but they, they don't move in response to commands. So they look as if they're unconscious, but as it turns out, they are. And I think you just touched on it there by mentioning neuroimaging, but how is it possible to measure and determine the existence of consciousness inside somebody who isn't who can't give any sort of physical response at all right right so vs patients we sort of known about them since around the 1970s but cmd patients we only discovered them as sort of a diagnostic category um in 2006 was the first sort of paper on this this came out of the adrian owen lab uh in cambridge um so there was a patient that was I think involved in a motor vehicle accident and she had been diagnosed repeatedly sort of diagnosed as vegetative for i think just just under a year this patient in particular um but what they did was they put her in a fmri scan so um, functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner so a big tube with a magnet that spins around um, creates this magnetic field and it's able to determine sort of where blood is flowing in the brain. And this is a rough proxy for sort of where brain activity is happening. Um, so what they did was they had this patient imagine performing a certain task. So they would ask her to imagine playing tennis. So you can you can sort of do this yourself, close your eyes and imagine sort of vigorously swing your arms running around the tennis court. It activates a specific uh, area of your brain, the supplementary motor area. Um, so they have her imagine playing tennis uh, and then when they say, and then they'll say, okay, relax. And the activity in the brain will stop. Then they say, imagine playing tennis again. We see this pattern of activation, relax, stop. And they do this sort of six or seven times. Um, and they get this really nice kind of signal of, of brain activation. So this is a rough proxy for kind of behavior, right? So this is equivalent to saying, if you can hear me, raise your hand. If you can hear me, imagine playing tennis. Um, and the patient was able to do this. So there was the tennis playing task, and then there was the walk around your house. Imagine walking through your house, kind of, here's the doorway, now I go into this room, now I go into that room. Um, so this activates a different area of the brain, but again, these are very distinct areas. Um, you wouldn't see this kind of activation just sort of by accident. There was a, not a worry, but one of the early objections to this research was, well, this could be kind of an automatic sort of thing. Maybe you just sort of unconsciously imagine tennis playing when you hear the word tennis, uh, but there were lots of previous experiments to rule this out as a possibility. Um, basically, the only way you're going to get this pattern of activation is if you understand the command and are actively deciding to imagine doing the task. This can't sort of happen on its own. Um, so yeah, so this is sort of a, a proxy for the behavior. So this isn't what it means to be conscious, but this is pretty good evidence that the patient is conscious. And so, so interesting, again, because although the patient cannot physically move, there's sort of a measurement of some physical activity in the, in the sense that the blood is flowing. Yes. And that's, that's, that could take us in a completely different direction about where the physical body ends and where consciousness begins. But we will leave that one for another time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
It's extremely interesting question though. And for the patients themselves, probably a very, very difficult matter. It's hard to imagine being in a state where you cannot move your physical body, but have consciousness and awareness inside. So what are the ethical implications for patients who are in this position? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a challenging question. And I mean, this is really what I'm interested in. So, um, you're, you're absolutely right to say we, we don't, we, it's very hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be in a state like this. Um, I think the natural thing, the natural way of thinking about this is, um, so imagine you sort of woke up in your bed, but you were just unable to sort of move. So you're completely paralyzed or something. That's not, it's not clear at all that that's what this is like. So you have to have to bear in mind that for these patients, they suffered a kind of a catastrophic brain injury to be in a state like this uh, in the first place. So either a traumatic brain injury as a result of kind of a car accident or something like that, or maybe they suffered a heart attack or stroke and their brain has been deprived of blood and they, they end up in a state like this. Um, so it's not clear that they're sort of conscious like us but sort of trapped in, in their body. So it's very difficult to say what it's like to be in a state like this because we have no idea based on our own experience, but also it's very difficult to assess what it's like because it's very, well, it's almost impossible uh, to communicate with these patients. Now I say almost because, so I mentioned the Owen study kind of at the beginning. Uh, that was the first one. That was only one patient. So Four years later, in 2010, there was a study by uh, Monty and colleagues. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I believe there were 23 VS patients that they scanned. Um, and they found that around, I think it was 17% of them. Um, so I think that's like four, around four patients uh, were able to do this mental imagery task. And this has been sort of replicated over several other studies. But a proportion of those patients, so a small kind of minority of those patients that can do mental imagery, can actually do mental imagery in order to answer questions. So they'll say, imagine playing tennis for yes, and imagine walking around your house for no. Uh, so there was one patient uh, quite famous, his name was Scott Routley. So he was involved in a, a road accident. I think he was riding his bike. Um, so this was in London, Ontario, where the Owen lab moved to. And this is sort of where I got connected with them because that's where I went to school. He was in a, a vegetative state I think for 12 years, thought to be unaware for 12 years. And then he he was able to um, do the mental imagery task and he was able to answer questions using the mental imagery task. So the first questions were things like, are you in a hospital? Yes or no. Are you in a supermarket? Yes or no. Is the year 2012? Yes or no. Is it 2004? Yes or no. So kind of biographical sort of questions, questions about orienting himself in space and time. And then they started asking him questions about sort of preferences. So because it was in Canada, of course, they had to ask him about watching ice hockey. So do you like watching ice hockey on TV? And of course, the answer is yes. I mean, we, we, we would have known this already. Um, <laughs> but then they asked him if he was in pain and happily he said no. Um, so this this patient gave us just a tiny little insight into what it might be like to be a patient like this. So we know that they're sort of capable of language comprehension, right? In order to do the task, this is the stuff that we can infer. Um, so language comprehension, short-term memory, working memory, um, 
attention. So they have to attend to this question rather than some other stimuli, you know, the magnet spinning around them. Uh, they're capable of some kind of preferences, at least at a basic level. Um, Scott was able to um, correctly name his care worker. So he was able to incorporate new information. So it wasn't just that he remembered his life before the accident and then nothing since. So he was able to incorporate new information. Um, and then there have been other sorts of experiments beyond the mental imagery tasks that tell us a little bit more about what it might be like to be these patients. Because um, interestingly, not everyone, even a healthy person, can do the mental imagery task. Um, so in order to validate this as, a, as an intervention, not an intervention, but validate the experiment, it's tested on sort of healthy participants first. Um, so not all healthy undergraduates, evidently, are conscious. Well, no. That's just a joke. Not all uh, healthy undergraduates are capable of doing mental imagery. It actually is. It's a pretty cognitively taxing sort of task. Um, and it might be a lot for some patients that have suffered this catastrophic brain injury. So it's possible that some patients are aware, but they just can't do mental imagery. Um, so the idea. So there was a postdoc in the Owen lab. Uh, she's at um, University College Dublin now, Lorena Nachi. She um, developed this this sort of experiment where she would play this very engaging stimulus. Uh, so first it was a short clip from Alfred Hitchcock movie. And then later on, it was sort of an audio scene from the movie Taken. So something very suspenseful. And the idea was to engage um, the parts of your brain that are involved in kind of suspense, um, something that really grabs your attention. Uh, and so they play this clip for um, these behaviorally non-responsive patients um, and compare them to the the pattern of activation that you'd see in a healthy participant. Uh, and in a few of the patients, it was it was the same. Um, again, and we didn't sort of see this activation. We saw a different pattern of activation when you scrambled the movie up. Um, so in the scrambled version, you're getting kind of the audio and video sort of stimuli, but you're not getting the suspense, right? Because everything's being shown out of order. Um, so this, again, is pretty good evidence that they're experiencing the movie in the same way that a healthy person is. So given that they can experience sort of suspense, what could this tell us about what it's like to be in, in this state? So one of the things it tells us is that they have this, they have something like a theory of other minds, right? So in order to experience suspense, you need to be aware of what's going on, but you also need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the character so that you, you're aware of what they're aware of. So in this particular Hitchcock movie, the idea is this kid, find, he's playing with a toy gun, then he finds a real gun, which he thinks is a toy, and he goes around pointing it at everyone. So as a viewer, you're afraid that he's going to pull the trigger and accidentally shoot somebody because he thinks it's just a toy. So in order to experience suspense, you need to know what you think, i.e. it's a real gun, but you also need to know what the character thinks. It's a fake gun. Um, so this is something that these patients can do. They're aware of the minds of other people. Um, so again, it, the thing is just to build up this picture of these patients experience uh, what it might be like to be like them and then based on that what can we infer about how good their lives are or how not so good their lives are so that's one of the big sort of ethical questions now that we know that these patients are experiencers what is it like for them to experience the world so if you were truly in a vegetative state you might think well some philosophers would argue that you your life can be going badly or well for you, even if you're not conscious. But I think most people would say, in order for it to make sense that my life is going well or badly for me, I need to be aware of it in some way. 
-hmm. I need to be experiencing my life. So CMD patients have effectively gone from non-experiencers to experiencers. Um, so that means that their lives can go well or poorly for them. Uh, so the question then is, how is it going? And then what can we do to make it go better? And that leads nicely into my next question, actually. But just to say first, these, these methods of measuring and communicating with patients in this state are absolutely ingenious and, and really, right. really incredible. Yeah. So what can we do to help patients who are in this state of consciousness? I'm thinking in terms of if, if we know it's going on, what can be done to enrich the lives that they have in these bodies? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's exactly the right way of thinking about this um, in terms of enrichment. Um, so for a lot of the patients that were the object of study um, kind of at the beginning, these are chronic patients. So these are patients that have been in this state for years and years um, and sort of decisions about continuing treatment are more or less off the table, i.e. these decisions have already been made. Um, it's slightly different in the acute context, which which maybe we can talk about as well. Um, but as far as chronic patients, it's it's very much what can we do to sort of, yeah, make their lives better. And so part of this is thinking about what kinds of things they can experience. Um, can they experience physical pleasures? Uh, so ensuring that they are experiencing as many physical pleasures as they can, avoiding sort of painful experiences. So it might even be something as simple as, um, you know, how often we turn them in their in their beds to avoid sort of bed sores or when they're being washed or cared for, not being sort of rough with them because they are not just alive, they're experiencing something. It's not that they're just a body, um, you know, providing stimulation for them. One of the things you might be worried about is this would be rather a boring existence if everyone around me just didn't interact with me because they weren't getting any feedback. So continuing to communicate with these patients, treat them as though they are experiencing things because they are, um, at least at some level. Um, so not just treating them as sort of things, but treating them as the people that they that they continue to be. Um, so just being cognizant of the fact that they are experience, they can experience sort of suffering and they can experience pleasure. So, I mean, th these are of course, fairly simple kind of care things that you can, that you can do um, or that we ought to be doing for these patients. Now in the, in the acute stage, things are a little bit different. And I think that's sort of where this research is ultimately going. So there are some challenges in assessing consciousness in the acute stage. The, the main one being that it's just, it's risky getting these patients into the scanner, just moving acutely brain injured patients around is quite a risk. So it's hard to get them in the scanner in the first place. And it's hard to get a good reading from them. Even if they would be capable of doing mental imagery, it's hard to get that sort of nice quality data. Um, but what would be really useful is if demonstrating consciousness told us something useful about prognosis. And so the preliminary evidence is that it, it might. Um, so being able to demonstrate consciousness a few weeks after your injury um, might bode well for eventual recovery. And so then it would be really useful. That could be something that we could add to our sort of battery of diagnostic tests. Because right now, uh, it is, it's hard to tell what patients are going to go on to recover and which patients aren't. So this can lead to really difficult decision making uh, for the family about whether you're going to go ahead with treatment. Um, because one of the things that you might worry about is, well, if we treat quite aggressively now and then the patient doesn't recover, now they're they're sort of trapped in this state. So would it be better to just allow them to die now rather than risk this sort of really bad outcome? So the more information you can get, the better, obviously. 
Um, so if if mental imagery could be used to sort of supplement this prognosis, um, that would be really useful. And so there's some encouraging data about that now, but I think that's sort of where this research is ultimately going. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. Okay, Mackenzie, in Burning Issues, we talk about the academic issues that are really getting you going. And you have a really nice one for us today. You're going to tell us a little bit about data hoarding and its consequences in academia. Yes. Uh, and data, ho <laughs> data hoarding, it's, it's, a good, it's a provocative way of putting it, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, yeah, so my, I mean, my area is very much in kind of the data ethics space, as well as that kind of neuroimaging stuff. And obviously, kind of data is of tremendous use across the spectrum of biomedical science. So everyone understands that in order to do good science, you need you need data. So one of the most exciting uses of data, obviously, is in the development of, of AI. Um, AI uses tremendous amounts of data. And the more data you have to train your AI, the better it's going to be. So as much data as we can get is going to be really important. Um, making it freely accessible, it makes research more reproducible, it makes it more cost effective. It avoids kind of unnecessarily duplicating studies, which again goes to sort of speed and cost effectiveness. That um, really drives innovation. So we want to share data, but we don't share data. Um, <laughs> in the medical sciences, biomedical sciences, it remains kind of uh, dispiritingly low, at least from the perspective of, of someone like me, who's actually not producing the data. So I, I should say there's some nuance to this issue, which, which we can get into. Um, so think of something like the recent COVID pandemic, which of course we always have to think about. Um, even during that time, probably 10% of the papers that were published provided access to the data that they used. And this is sort of not out of line with most biomedical research. So these researchers, they go to all of this effort and trouble collecting the data. They want to publish on it. They don't want to get scooped. They don't want to share it. Um, on the one hand, you say, fair enough, kind of that's sort of the, the research ecosystem in, in which we exist. But on the other hand, sort of not fair enough. Um, <laughs> we're, we're depriving the scientific community of all of this useful data that other people could be using to do important research, right? Um, so smaller labs may not be able to go out and collect the same kinds of data. Um, we could be, we could just be maximizing the use of this data in a much more effective and efficient way if we were just willing to share it. So as an ethicist, I get a little, my kind of grinds my gears a little bit um, that oftentimes people will say, well, we would really like to share our data, but there's these ethical kind of worries about it. And now to be fair, sometimes there are. So there are issues about kind of privacy and informed consent and confidentiality. And the, obviously these things are very important, um, but they're not insurmountable obstacles by any means. You can ask patients for their consent to sort of go on and, and share their data uh, if you want to. A lot of this data is sort of pseudonymized or anonymized, um, and it could be shared without a lot of ethical concern. Um, I think it's just we aren't the the research system isn't sort of set up for this necessarily yet 
but there's these sort of ethical and, and technical reasons that are given against sharing data that A, we need to be working to overcome and B, we need to sort of acknowledge when they are problems that can be solved. I think really the major problem is this sort of perverse incentive structure in academia that you need to publish. And so you need to hoard your data so that you can publish and other people don't publish on the back of your data. Um, and I mean, in talking to other researchers that actually do sort of produce their own data, um, this is sort of the sense I get from them. I mean, I've, you know, they would say, I've spent years and years collecting this data. I put all this work into it. Why would I just give it away to someone else to benefit off of? And I mean, <laughs> the answer is because science is this sort of community societal exercise. We're all supposed to be in this together. We're all supposed to be doing this for societal benefit. And now this is, even as I'm saying this, this sounds kind of naively idealistic. The purpose of science is to get the next big research grant and get your permanent job. I mean, that's sort of the reality. So there's, like I say, the, the incentive structure is, is, does not encourage sort of data sharing. So how do we fix this incentive structure? Well, we need to reward people for producing data as well as publishing on data. Um, I think that would be a major kind of thing. Now, there are some questions about how we're going to do this. Um, but you need to, yeah, you need to make it something that is is valued, the, the, the data production and the data sharing, something that's valued as well as the publishing on the data and kind of the outputs. Um, it should be an output on its own. Um, until we do that, there's, there is no incentive to do it because it's hard work collecting data and curating data. And why would you just give it away? I think you're exactly right that the difficulty is that it's built into the structure at mm -hmm. the moment. And it sort of touches on that, that backstabbing element of academia that sometimes pops up in popular culture. As you were describing all of it, I, I had an episode of Midsummer Murders, of all things, come into my mind, where there are a couple of <laughs> academics and there's a, quite an argument over who owns the data and who has the rights to it and what they're going to do with the data. Uh, and it, it gets very violent, as you might imagine. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I, I've, never, I've never seen it kind of get that violent. Um, <laughs> but, you, but you're right. I mean, it is, it's, a, it's a competitive kind of environment. And so you might think, well, this competitiveness drives productivity and drives innovation. And it's, you know, it's this struggle for research dollars. We can't fund everything. So we can, you know, we, we sort of want to drive this competition. I, I mean, I, I'm not unsympathetic to that disposition, but it seems like this is preventing us from doing the best kind of science that we can. Now, especially in something like a pandemic context, how can you not be sharing this, this data? Um, when it's all when what we're interested in is sort of speed and lives being saved and this sort of stuff, people shouldn't be sort of like we said at the beginning, kind of hoarding their data so that they can be the one to get the big publication and all the the accolades. It should be it should be a bit more sort of I don't know, selfless than that. It does seem perverse in some respects. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So Mackenzie, we turn to the cutting edge where we look at the future of your discipline. And you're going to tell us what's going on in ethics. You have a very specific thing that you're looking at here. Tell us about it. Yeah. So right now I'm really interested in this idea of trust and trustworthiness in data sharing, particularly as it applies to um, kind of medical AI. 
applications, right? So we, we sort of touched on this a bit earlier about the importance of data and data sharing in, in terms of its usefulness in training um, AI, right? So there's all these potentially wonderful applications of AI um, in the medical context, as well as outside. Um, so mostly right now they're used for kind of prediction or classification. Um, so looking at a scan and saying, well, this is cancer, this isn't, or who's gonna benefit from this future treatment versus who isn't. So here's so there's one example, this was a, um, an AI spin out actually that I used to be involved with when I worked with this group called INSIMI, which is the National Consortium for Intelligent Medical Imaging. Um, so this was about stroke patients. So about 80% of stroke patients, when they go into hospital, having suffered a stroke, they'll leave with some kind of disability. Um, so the prospects are not great. So most of this is because of uh, blood clots called large vessel occlusion. So the standard of care is to give them this drug that helps to sort of dissolve the clot, um, but it's not particularly effective. So the newer treatment is something called mechanical thrombectomy, where basically we kind of, in layman's terms, because I'm a layman when it comes to this, you should have put this tube into the artery and you can remove the blockage. So rather than using drugs, you're using sort of a mechanical sort of thing. Um, and this is, I mean, it's not a miracle treatment, but almost it is. So you have patients that would have ended up in nursing homes with 24 hour care. They're walking out of the hospital the next day. Like it's a complete turnaround. Um, so it's just really um, effective treatment. Um, it's only useful in a, a small sort of proportion of stroke, case, um, stroke cases. Um, so only about 1% of patients in the UK actually get mechanical thrombectomy after a stroke, but about 10% probably could benefit. The problem is we can't identify which patients would benefit from it in real time because we don't have sort of the neuroradiologist on hand to do this. So here's where sort of Dr. AI steps in. Uh, so we use this um, this app to determine who would be a good candidate for this. We can get them into surgery, get this clot, and save these patients from a lifetime of, of disability. Um, so AI is really good at stuff like this, um, looking at the data, finding patterns, uh, and determining sort of who would benefit from care, who wouldn't, or whether this thing is a cancerous tumor or not. Um, so this is really exciting. Um, of course, we need to have sort of lots of data to train this on. We need good quality data. We need good representative data. Um, then this this raises questions about kind of data sharing and privacy. Should we prioritize people's worries about their privacy versus kind of benefiting the public? Who owns the data? Who should get to benefit from uh, these apps if they start making money? All of all of these sorts of questions. Um, but sort of at the at the heart of this debate, I think, is this question of trust, right? So why should we trust Google DeepMind with our data? Why should we trust OpenAI with our data? Why should we trust the NHS with our data? Um, doesn't necessarily matter what they're good. Well, it does matter what they're going to be doing with it, uh, but we might trust them differently based on who they are or what they're planning on doing with it. So we have this question of what institutions should we trust with our data and why, and what does it actually mean to trust them? Um, and then on the other hand, we've got questions about trust in the AI itself. So why should I trust sort of Dr. AI? Um, am I really just trusting the people that have designed the AI? Or um, if I go, if, you know, in the in a few years in the future when ChatGPT is offering sort of mental health treatment, does it even make sense for me to say that I trust this algorithm 
with my mental health? And can I enter into sort of a trust relationship with this AI? Um, I mean, this, this, is, this question gets right to the sort of the philosophy of trust and, and what the concept actually means. Um, and that's, that's sort of, as a, trained as a philosopher, that's what I'm really interested in. Um, what does it mean for an institution to be trustworthy or a trustworthy user of data? What does it mean for us to trust an AI? What does it mean for us to trust an institution? Um, and this is different from the question, what would it take for me to trust an institution? Um, it's more like when I trust, what what is it that I'm doing? Um, because we use the word trust quite loosely. Um, we might say something like, if we see sort of a, a rickety ladder, we need to get up on the roof, you'd say, well, I'm not sure I trust that ladder. Um, but that's sort of a misuse of the concept. You can't trust a ladder anyways. It's mm -hmm. it's kind of a, it, it's not the kind of thing that's the proper object of, of trust. You might say, I, I don't, I can't rely on this ladder, something like that, because reliance and trust are different. Um, you could say, I trust a person. You might also be able to rely on a person. So the question is, is an AI the kind of thing that I can trust or that it makes sense to talk about in this way? And so we, we want to be able to trust AI. We want to be able to trust the institutions that are developing AI, um, but we, we don't just want to trust them. We want our trust to be warranted, right? Um, we want them to be trustworthy. It might be the case that we all trust Google or the NHS, but this is a terrible mistake. Uh, they're not trustworthy at all. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the case, uh, but it could be the case. Um, so the mere fact that we all happen to trust them is not really going to do us very much good. We might all feel sort of warm and fuzzy until our until this trust is betrayed. Uh, so we don't want to just trust. We want to trust the people who we should trust. And that mm -hmm. requires that these institutions be trustworthy. So I'm interested in what does it mean for an institution to be trustworthy? What does it mean for an AI uh, to be trustworthy? Such an important question, and I think it's going to become more and more relevant as we begin to see these these programs being introduced at different levels of society. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, way, the way we perceive them, uh, the way we interact with them, um, this all kind of comes into sort of how we how we trust um, what we trust things to do. Um, so I think I mean the the NHS is such an interesting example because there's lots of sort of empirical research that that suggests that people implicitly trust the NHS, but it's not it's not actually clear sort of what that means. They trust them to do what? Um, so there's there's sort of two ways that we often will talk about trust. Is you know I trust Jordan to uh, not embarrass me on this podcast, something like that. So uh, A, trust B to do C. But sometimes we talk about, well, you know, my partner, I trust, I just trust them. It's not about a certain activity that they're doing. You just sort of trust, sort of simpliciter, a philosopher might say. So when we're talking about trust, trusting the NHS, do we mean trusting in this way or trusting them to do something? Um, so I was, I was thinking about this, trying to come up with an example to kind of exemplify this sort of two-place trust. Um, and I sort of have a really bad, <laughs> a really bad habit of when people call me, I'll like kind of screen their calls. Um, this is just, this is not something that you should do. Um, <laughs> but so if someone calls me and then they see that I don't pick up, if I'm a trustworthy person, they'll say, well, they probably had a good reason sort of to do this because I trust, I trust them. You know, I'm not, I'm not trusting that they'll pick up the phone if they're there. It's just sort of, 
I trust them. And that's a way of interpreting kind of what they do. Um, whereas if I was calling somebody that I don't really trust, um, maybe I, it's a, it's, I'm in a new relationship and they're out sort of out at the bar with their friends and I call them and then they don't pick up. My reaction is going to be, Ooh, they must be doing something bad. Um, that's, it's a way that I kind of see them and interpret their actions. Hmm. Um, so it's not that I don't trust them to go out to the bar and, you know, not get into trouble. It's just, it's a way of kind of seeing them. So is this the, is this sort of what we're talking about when we're talking about institutions? Is it a way of seeing the institution and interpreting their actions? Or is it something like, I trust the NHS to keep my data safe and not give it to private companies that will ex exploit it for profit? Is that what we're talking about? Um, and I mean, another sort of question is, is trust even the right sort of way to think about this whole relationship? Um, if we're talking about trust, we're usually talking about sort of a willingness to make ourselves vulnerable to something, right? So when I trust someone, I know that there's a chance that my trust can be let down. And if it is let down, I'll sort of feel betrayed and upset. Um, this is a, this is a, the right kind of reaction to someone letting down my trust. Is this what we want in our relationship with Google DeepMind? Do we want to make, open ourselves up to betrayal and make ourselves vulnerable? Or do we just want them to keep our data safe and, and use it how they say they're going to. So maybe we're more interested in sort of security and transparency and dependability. Basically, we want our institutions to be reliable users of data. And this seems to be what the public says that they want. They say, well, it, it's a bit confused because they say, I want to trust Google DeepMind with my data. And in order to trust them, I want them to be reliable and make my data secure and be accountable and all these different things. And it sounds like they're not really, to me at least, they're not describing trust, they're describing something else. Um, we don't wanna to have to trust people and sort of go out on a limb and hope that they do the right thing. We wanna make sure that they're doing the right thing. And we want to be able to sort of watch them do the right thing. This isn't really trust, but I mean, that's fine. We should just call it what it is. But what we really don't want is the NHS cheating at the bar. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we do not want that. Fascinating, fascinating level of nuance in these different shades of trust and trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. Mackenzie, what's your hope for the future of your research? So right now, um, I would like to, so I, I've, I've said a little bit about what I think trust involves or kind of what it is or what it isn't. Um, right now, there's a, there's a group of us uh, at Oxford trying to develop this account of institutional trustworthiness, what it actually means to be a trustworthy institution. Um, so A, it's important to get this straight so we know what we're talking about, but sort of for practical purposes, if institutions sort of know what is required of them to be trustworthy, then they can go out and, and be more trustworthy. Um, they can secure the, tr the sort of warranted trust of the public. So now this might have useful practical applications to getting people on board more comfortable with sharing their data. Um, but it's also just about doing what's right. Um, even if people aren't more willing to trust an institution that's trustworthy, I think it's just important that they are trustworthy. Um, they've got this valuable public resource, people's health data. They should be doing right by it. They should be being trustworthy, even if it's not going to get them any further. But as it turns out, I suspect that it will get them further um, if they just are trustworthy. So so figuring out what's required there for them to be trustworthy uh, and then hopefully getting them to do it. 
uh, this is going to allow more data to be shared, one hopes, uh, and more potentially useful AI to be developed among many other applications. And this is going to benefit patients. This is going to save lives. This is going to make healthcare cheaper. Now, that's going to be somebody else. That won't be me. Uh, uh, but developing this, this account and making it useful for sort of um, for institutions, for policymakers, just so that they can they can talk about these things, I think, in the right kind of way and, and think about them clearly. Um, I think that's enough for a, a philosopher like me. We'll leave the sort of the real difficult challenges to the people that are more qualified to do that. Great stuff. Really great stuff. Final question, Mackenzie, how can our listeners reach you if they'd like to learn more about anything that you've talked about today? Uh, well, I'm always happy to to get emails from people. I will try I will try to respond to them. I don't screen my emails in the same way that I screen my calls. <laughs> so yeah, my just my name, Mackenzie.graham at philosophy um, dot ox ac dot uk. I'm also on Twitter as well, although I'm not particularly active on Twitter. But yeah, emails you can always you can always get a hold of me if you're interested in the disorders of consciousness stuff, data sharing stuff, trust, anything. Not anything, oh. just those things. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. A really, really fascinating set of issues there. And Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining us today because it's been a great conversation. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. One, two, three, four. To discover more of the research you love, listen to academic papers, take notes and share. Sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 